I'll tell you, it is so good to see each of you here this morning, uh, especially in light of the fact that uh, many of our kids are back with us, and I want you to know they are excited. I mean, they were standing in front of the door, some of them are jumping, and it is just a joy to be able to see that we're able to start having families come back uh, in the midst of this pandemic. God continues to do his work, and I want to thank you. Um, we have a number of people that have said, hey, you know what? I am willing to step up and to serve just one hour a, a week to invest in the lives of these kids. I, I want you to know that we'll have more needs, and if you would like to get more information, just call the church office or get a hold of Carrie or Kim, our children's ministry directors, and they can give you more information. But let's keep praying about this. We've tried to keep everything as safe as possible. We've got people that are working overtime to make that happen. And then also, just as another matter of prayer, last week I asked if you'd just be praying because we're looking to add an additional pastor to our pastoral team, an adult ministries pastor. Uh, just because we want to shepherd well the flock of God among us. So if you'd be joining us in prayer, and we've got a search team in process, and they are already at work. At this time, I'm going to ask if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Perhaps the greatest test to following Jesus is when you and I face persecution or unjust suffering. No one in this room is unscathed. By facing injustice, we've been injured by people's words, we've been not treated fairly. Uh, some of the more painful realities of our life are when we've been mistreated or maligned. And you're familiar with this. Maybe you've got a family member or more than one. And frankly, they make your life miserable. It is, almost seems as if that's their objective. Maybe you have a neighbor that is divisive or belittling. Maybe they actually live next door to you. Ever have that? Ugh, painful. Maybe you've got a boss who is overbearing. Or you work at a company that uh, kind of tolerates a culture of coworkers that are vindictive and belittling. Maybe you've got a, a boss who's just overbearing. Or maybe, maybe this is your situation where you have been passed over on multiple occasions for a promotion. Maybe you've just been cut out. And it, it really, it all comes down to favoritism. I'm working with a, a guy who is completely qualified for a very significant position, had all the education and experience, and even proven himself in leadership, and he was passed over by someone that was underneath him just because they got favorites, helping that guy process that. Maybe you have faced injustice. You have actually been treated poorly because of your race or your sex. Maybe there are comments that have been made. Maybe there's been attitudes that have just been carried about, and you're the recipient of that. And maybe you're here and you've faced a degree of persecution for your faith in Christ. You have found out firsthand that it may not be popular in your family to be a follower of Jesus or at school. And or maybe at your job, and you've got some labels. And sometimes they even tell them to you in your face. And culture has a way of kind of getting you back in line, belittling you, um, treating you poorly, making fun of you, or even worse. And in these times, how is it that we are to function? I want you to know that my years of experience as a pastor, most of the the hardships and injustice and the treating poorly and the injuring of people's character and reputation, at least the stories that I've heard and I've experienced, 
have actually been for those, come from those who would actually identify themselves as Christians. Hard as that is to imagine. They go off with their words, their little social tirade, their little media assault and massacre, and you're like, where is Jesus in all of this? I, I want you to know, personally, I've concluded that folks like this are like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, where he says that these are the folks that have been um, in the snare of the devil, having been blinded by him. They're held captive by him to do his will. They just don't seem to see. They're caught up, not with Christ, but with evil. Some of the hardest stories I've heard, people in our own church who have been so significantly maligned, treated so poorly, even by quote-unquote Christians, vindictive, make your life miserable, treat you poorly, malign your character in this community. And you need to know that if you are truly a Christian, you're going to at times face suffering. You've got God's word on it. Let me give you a couple verses on that. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's going to happen. Or like Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For you, for you, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So how is it that we're to live? when we face this kind of suffering. What's to happen? I mean, how do we function? Do we, we know that, like it says in 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But I'll tell you what, this world can be a painful place and it can really clamp down on you. How do we live? How does Jesus display that he is king in our lives and, in our, and over our lives through transformation and not retaliation? Well, the words we're about to look at here on the Sermon on the Mount, as we continue to walk in this, are absolutely life-transformative. You take these words to heart, friends, you will live differently, and God will be put on display in a way our culture so desperately needs. Kingdom citizens living in a broken world. Remember, Jesus is speaking to who on the Sermon on the Mount? He's speaking to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. He's calling them together. He's saying, I am calling you to live differently. And it's, and it's through Christ we actually can. Christ didn't come to abolish the law to fulfill it. He has actually given us his spirit. He's our righteousness. He will empower us, and he actually gives us clear direction in his word on how to live differently, especially differently than the scribes and the Pharisees who had a way of taking the scriptures and twisting them with their traditions to have an outcome far different than God ever intended. And so that's what Jesus is going to address here, especially on this very difficult subject of how we're to display the king in the times where retaliation is what we would really like to do. And God says it's in those moments, in those painful moments, the ones that you might be living in right now, I intend to bring transformation and so he begins by talking about the law of retaliation and describing it. And you're familiar with this. Look at verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, this is the law of retaliation. And I'm sure that you've heard it. Even if you're a non-Christian, you're like, definitely have heard that. In Latin, it's the lex talionis. 
It's the law of revenge. And really, this is ancient. The earliest encoding of the, the uh, Lex Talionis that we have is the Code of Amurabi. He was a Babylonian king. But it likely existed far uh, beyond him, earlier than him. But 100 years before the time of Moses, we have the, it written in this code. But the Old Testament has multiple times this recorded. In fact, these are direct quotes, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it really goes beyond this. This was really just meant to trigger your mind. Yeah, it's an eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth, but it was a hand for a hand, foot for a foot, cut for a cut, bruise for a bruise. He went on to talk about injuries and how they were to be uh, responded. And there's two reasons why these punishments are to be doled out this way. One was that it was to curtail further crime. So you uh, broke someone's hand, and then you saw that someone else's hand got broken because of that. It was to serve as a deterrent to crime. Like it said in Deuteronomy 19.20, that the rest are going to be here and be afraid, and never such evil will be done again. Okay? But that's one reason. But the second reason for this law of retaliation is that it had the purpose of maintaining justice and to prevent excessive punishment. Because human nature is such that, oh, you injured me, I'm going to show you who's boss. I'm not only going to injure you, but I'm going to make it a lot worse. Now, this is the problem. When we hear eye for eye and tooth for tooth, almost everyone thinks, oh, that's about personal revenge, personal retaliation. And that's actually what the Jewish Pharisees and the scribes had twisted it to become. When in fact, it has nothing to do with personal vengeance. It has everything to do with the government. You don't bring about vengeance. You don't do your own vigilante justice. That is determined by the government. And yet, what happened is with these scribes and these Pharisees, they had actually become their own judge, jury, and executioner. They had taken matters in their own hands. They had twisted it with their tradition, this word of God meant to give for the government on how to bring about justice, and they were using it for their own evil ends. I want you to know that when self its interest dominates, you're going to find that justice is actually replaced with vengeance. And that's what was happening here. Jewish tradition had turned it into a personal license where you go and take care of matters on your own. No need to involve the government. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We'll take care of this. And I want you to know that that's what Jesus is going to address you see, this law of retaliation, that'll never bring transformation. And that's what Jesus intends. So after describing the law of retaliation, Jesus now presents to us the life of transformation and what it looks like displayed. So Jesus says, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you who are following me, my disciples, you are trusting in my grace. You know my mercy, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. He is talking about the reality that aggression is not to be escalated. 
but I say to you. You see, the human tendency is to seek revenge, vengeance. Jesus is saying, I don't want you ending up like the Hatfield and McCoys. You know that from like American history? You know the Hatfield and McCoys? How this works is, you know, listen, you get into an argument with your neighbor, right? And it gets heated and you let him have it, right? Well, then he really unloads and he says some unkind things about your family. Well, that makes you mad, you know? And so you hit him with a stick. Whoa, well, you hit me with a stick, so he shoots your dog. Oh, well, you're going to shoot my dog? Well, then I'm going to poke your eye out with this stick here. And so you do that. Well, then you're, you're going to do that. I'm going to burn your house down. Next thing your house is on fire. Well, I think I'll shoot at some of your family members. That's how the Hatfield McCoys, that's how they did it, tooth, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says, I don't want you to end up like that. Not at all. You see, I want you to understand that Jesus is not prohibiting the use of force by a government, by police, by the military when combating evil. And nowhere in Scripture are you ever going to find that we're to be submissive victims to physical or verbal or sexual abuse or race or rape or terrorism. None of that. But what he is telling us is this. You need to remember that vengeance is like a venom. It'll poison your heart. You see, it is noble to bite your tongue when somebody just treats you poorly on your job or at the grocery store. You know, some of these maniac drivers, I'm not sure where they come from, but you know, they're the ones, you know, that blow past you about an extra 40 miles past that speed limit, you know? How do they never get caught, you know? And they just kind of cut you off, and you're forced to, you know, cut back your speed and prevent another wreck, you know, as they just kind of go on their merry way instead of cursing them out. You know how your blood pressure rises? It's probably good that your windows are up, right, you know? He's saying there's a better way. But on the other hand, if you, um, if you see someone that's defenseless and they're being accosted, maybe even beat up, you would step in. If you see a kid, someone trying to kidnap them or, or, or actually apprehend, you know, take someone you know, and like throw them in the back of a van, you will step in. You don't like, well, I think Jesus is calling you just to kind of watch everything and be pretty passive here. Absolutely not. If some terrorists run across our border, don't you like, well, we'll just kind of wave the white flag here. I think that's what we're supposed to do if we're followers of Jesus. No, what this is, this statements of Jesus are doing is meant to tell us we're to resist retaliation. We are not to be vindictive. He's not calling us to be passive and just get rolled over. He's calling us not to be vindictive. John Stott puts it this way. He says, Jesus' words, they give us this perspective, quote, Christ's illustrations are not to be taken as the character for an unscrupulous tyrant, ruffian, beggar, or thug. His purpose was to forbid revenge, not to encourage injustice, dishonesty, or vice. And then he goes on to write, true love, caring for both the individual and society, takes action to deter evil and to promote good. And so Jesus is going to give us four examples of what this looks like. How should we react when we face unfair or unreasonable treatment? What does transformation as a disciple of Jesus look like in the real world? Well, he's going to give us four examples. And the first one you're going to find here right in verse 39, and that is we are not to retaliate to insults. You're familiar with this. I'm sure you've heard it. Look at verse 39. It says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. 
Now, among the Jews, to be slapped in the face would be one of the highest insults that a person could ever endure. Now, Jesus isn't uh, saying, well, you just need to deal and uh, just accept all sorts of physical abuse. No, he's talking about the insults that inevitably come from wicked, evil, self-serving hearts. And notice what cheek he pointed out, the right cheek. So how, as most people are normally right-handed, how do you hit someone on the right cheek? With the back of your right hand, whack. That was about the most insulting thing you could ever do to someone's character. It was to attack their honor. It was to be seen as a terrible indignity. And what Jesus' point is, not that we endure physical abuse, but that you and I are not vindictive. We're not going to try to get even or worse and ramp it up with the insults. We are to be non-avenging, non-retaliatory. That's what he's calling for here. And how many times have we had endured an insult? Maybe uh, someone said something to you that, uh, about you that's not true. Maybe they took it to the social media, you know? How that's just pretty popular. Just let it fly. See how far this will go. Jesus is calling us not to be vindictive, not to retaliate. And by the way, if you spend all your time thinking like, oh boy, this is what I sh- I'm going to say. Next time, man, I'm, I'm just waiting for the moment. Friends, that's going to eat you. You need to live differently. He's calling for a life of transformation. We had a pretty amazing example of this in 1997 at the Masters Tournament. Tiger Woods, I'm sure we're all familiar with him, and, and some of you are going to recall this situation. He won that Masters Tournament. But you remember a guy, a pro golfer by the name of Fuzzy Zoller. He responded with a mean, racist set of comments. And it, and it was bad. Uh, his remarks, though they were intended to be funny, were very uh, mean-spirited. And I want you to know that Fuzzy received a lot of bad press and a great deal of well-deserved criticism for his remarks. And everybody wanted to see how Tiger Woods, this phenom, was going to respond because he had every right to shred him. But what Tiger Woods did was unexpected and unforgettable. Tiger Woods released this statement after this event, and everyone was watching and listening. And this is what he had written. At first... I was shocked to hear that Fuzzy Zoller had made these unfortunate remarks. His attempt at humor was out of bounds, and I was disappointed by it. But having played golf with Fuzzy, I know he's a jokester, and I have concluded that no personal animosity toward me was intended. And listen to this. He says, I respect Fuzzy as a golfer and as a person and for the many good things he has done for others throughout his career. I know that he feels badly about his remarks. We all make mistakes, and it is time to move on. I accept Fuzzy's apology, and I hope that everyone can now put this behind us. You know, all the journalists, many people in America wanted Tiger to just tear into him. And he had every right, right? And he said... 
We all make mistakes. It's time to move on. It's what this text says. It's what Jesus said. You turn the other cheek. What does a life of transformation look like displayed? Well, you, you don't retaliate to insults. Look at this next verse, verse 40. You do more than is required to make things right. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. If a legal judgment is fairly made against you, you're wrong. You not only pay the certain amount, but you do more so to show that you have a heart to want to make it right. This is radical, but this is Jesus. This is real. This is transformation. This is to show that you've got a regret for the wrong that you inflicted. And so Jesus used this example. He says, if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now, most people in Israel, they had two shirts. It's kind of like an undergarment shirt, and they had one coat. Most of us are probably got a little bit more like that, more than that in our wardrobe, right? In fact, most of us have closets of clothes. Two shirts, common. One coat. That coat, by the way, they would uh, use to keep warm at night. In fact, the law said that if you had to take, they had to give you your coat, you had to give it back at night because that was the only way that you stayed warm. So, like, if you're, like, to understand this, try imagining, like, in the month of December, January, sleeping in your backyard without a blanket or a coat. It would be absolutely miserable, right? And so you were to give back your coat. But what Jesus is saying is this. If you've wronged, you were the one that's wrong, and you're being sued, you give them your shirt, but also your coat. You don't have to give your coat because you couldn't be forced to give them your coat. You do it anyway. And when you didn't have any money, that's how you would pay. You would pay in clothing. And we see examples of that in Scripture, but here we see Jesus referencing that. You just give them your coat as well. Why? Because you want to show a heart that I know what I did was wrong and I want to make it right and then some. So how do we put this into play? Well, I'm sure we've all done some things that are wrong. Maybe you've uh, said something and you really slandered someone's character. You hurt them. Maybe you've done something at work or at school. You took credit for something that you really didn't do. But you, you took credit for that. Maybe you've injured someone with your gossip or your words. Jesus is saying, you make it right and then some. And I want you to know this is a humbling experience. You know, it's kind of almost easier, like, well, someone wronged me. I'll forgive them. But it's pretty hard when you're the one that's done the wrong and they hate you. And you're saying, hey, I want to make this right and then some. That's what Jesus is calling. It's not easy, but it's holy. It's showing the transformation that Jesus brings in the real-life problems that we face. Look at this next one, verse 41. You ever heard the phrase, go the extra mile? You heard that? Some of you, like you use it on your kids, you need to go the extra mile, you know, right? Well, I want you to know, this is exactly where it comes from. Look at verse 41. It comes from Jesus. He says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. 
And this really has a remarkable history, this go the extra mile. It's, it's actually rooted in Roman law. In Roman law, a Roman soldier could basically commandeer anybody and make them carry their pack and their weapons for a million. It is a Roman mile. A Roman mile was a thousand paces at a brisk walk. So if you ever wonder where we get our modern mile, this is where we get it from the Roman million, which our modern mile is just a little bit longer than the Roman million. But how this would work is a Roman soldier could at any time say, you know, I'm done carrying my pack of stuff, my weapons. You, you got it. You're like, what? You're carrying my stuff. Let's go. And you had no choice. Consequences could be kind of harsh on you if you didn't follow through. And that's how it worked. It is written that a Roman soldier was never more despised except for times of war than when a Roman soldier, an occupying soldier, would call someone from that country that they're occupying and saying, you, you're carrying my stuff, let's go. And you didn't have a choice. I mean, imagine what that would be like today if that's the law of the land. And a soldier carrying their pack and stuff said, you know, I'm tired of this. And they see you and you're kind of like trying to make your way to that appointment. You're just a little bit late and it's big. Like you, you, me? Yeah, you're carrying my stuff now. Let's go. You're like, you didn't have a choice. Do you know how inconvenient that would be? Or, or even like how maybe insulting that would be to your character? Like, oh, here I am carrying the weapons and the pack of an occupying soldier. And they seem to be enjoying this. Jesus says, when that happens, I don't want you to just do one mile. I want you to go the extra mile. We see an example of this law in place. Remember when Jesus was making his way to the place that they're going to crucify him? You know, they ripped him to shreds, you know, after they got done beating and whipping him. And he was no longer have enough strength. You see this like in the end of Matthew or also in the Gospel of Mark. And he literally couldn't walk and carry that cross anymore. And so a Roman soldier just picked out one guy and said, you, you're carrying it. And that's why Simon Cyrene, he didn't have a choice. The Roman soldier called it. It was the law. He didn't want to be next. Things are tense. You pick up the load and you carry it. That's what's going on here. And Jesus says, I want you to go the extra mile. Friends, all of us are going to have opportunities of doing this. For instance, maybe you work at a place and uh, they're rough on you. Your boss is a bully. In fact, they kind of treat you poorly. You might even have it in your mind that pretty much, I think they do everything they can to oppress me and depress me and to work me over. And I want you to know the natural response, and you, and you see this, you probably even work with people like this. They're, they have figured out what is the absolute bare minimum I need to do to keep this job. You know, there's the, they're the ones that, you know, an hour before quitting time, they're already kind of watching the clock, you know, and they're kind of arranging their stuff. The boss walks by, like, ah, oh, grab my little pen, doodle on the paddle here, little clicking away on the computer. Oh, he's gone now. Oh, man, I leave out more minutes here. Oh, yeah, check on my phone, see how my friends are doing. Oh, that's so cute. I like that. Oh, there's the boss again. And they figure out the bare minimum. 
what Jesus is calling for is go the extra mile. You're, you're working at a company. They've got a big deadline. But you're so used to skimming by on the, on the bare minimum. Jesus says, you know what transformation looks like? They've asked if you'd be willing to put some extra time on this to make this work. You say, yeah, absolutely, boss. You said you need me for another hour? I'll give you two. And you do it magnanimously, with grace, with a heart. You will literally amaze people with grace. Jesus, at work in your life. It's transformation. It, it, it will send some waves when you live like this. And you're like, well, is that going to change anything? Will it, will it make my boss like take notice? I don't know, possibly. It had, people that go the extra mile, do their work with excellence, with joy, I want you to, that usually gets noticed. But whether it gets noticed or not, it's going to do a work in you. You're following Jesus. You're living in his grace. You're demonstrating transformation. You're going the extra mile. And he gives one more example of what transformation looks like, this life of living in Christ. Verse 42, and that is to, that we're to give to the one who asks from you. He says, give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The implication here is that the person that is asking has an actual genuine need. They are literally humbled to the place where they are forced to beg and they ask you with humility and with grace, with generosity, we're going to seek to meet that need. doesn't need a lot of, a lot of fanfare. You don't do anything else to anybody. But you see that it's actual and it's real and you meet it. Now, this doesn't mean that um, you're required to give foolishly or uh, you're like some lazy person. You know, the folks, they, they don't want to work, but they're really interested in handouts wherever they can find them. And they, they're pretty good at working the system, you know? They're lazy. They could get a job. They could work, but they don't really want to do that. They're, they're just going to ask you. Well, you. The Bible even says, you think you're supposed to help me if I need it, right? And I would need it because I want to go out to dinner. And there's that movie that I've been wanting to see. And I need this for my car. And you're not required to give to that. In fact, there's a lot of text that tells us that we're to be good stewards of our resources. You and I are called to exercise what is called discernment to understand the situation. And sometimes, actually, just giving people that are lazy or unwilling to work, they're just looking for their next handout, that'll actually make the problem worse than better. So does this mean, though, that if you're a Christian banker and uh, someone comes to you and says, hey, need a loan, and you look at their credit and it is, like, terrible, that doesn't mean that you would give them a loan because that would probably not be wise. Or, you know, maybe you've got a family member or a friend. You're like, hey, I, I, need, I need money again. They didn't pay you back the last time or the last four times. In fact, they seem to have a circuit that they run. You want to be wise and discerning. But when you come across a genuine need, and you'll know it, and you can investigate it to see it, we want to be generous and gracious and meet it. So how in the world... Who, who lives like this? Who lives like Jesus is calling for? I mean, it's not natural. 
It's not natural to not retaliate. Everybody retaliates. We live in a cancel culture, right? You just tear people to shreds. You've got every right. Vengeance is all about you. You take care of it, right? It's not natural to make things right. It's not natural to go the extra mile. And it is not natural to live generously and graciously. You're right, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's Jesus at work and his people. And we shine the light of Christ. We are the salt of the earth when Christ is being manifested in our behavior. And I'll tell you, this is only possible through being united with Christ. This is going to call for a death to self. This is going to call for a radical transformation where Jesus is everything. That the issue of lordship in your life, you have decided and understood that it's really not you. It's really him. And I am following Jesus. You know, for all the times that we have been vengeful, you know, we've, we've done our own little vengeance, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. For the times that we've mistreated people, when we have been the one that have wronged others, when we have refused to go the extra mile, in fact, we have like, no way, I'm not doing that. I want you to know that's called missing the mark. It's called sin. That's why Jesus came. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us to live differently. And the one who we are trusting is the one who transforms. It's Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, Jesus. He's the one that brings this about. You see, he wants us living as kingdom citizens in the midst of a broken world. And through Christ, this is really possible. In fact, it's desirable. Now, he's not saying like, oh, here's a bunch of other things that you have to do, like some more rules. And you're like, oh, my goodness, now I've got to do all this or this or this. No, he's not calling for an additional set of rules to impose on your life. What he's doing, he's saying is that when your heart has been freed from anger and bitterness, being vindictive and living for revenge, when you were knowing the goodness of Jesus and he's transforming your life, These words are life. They're directing you to a different way, his way. And there'll be a desire to do him. It'll call for a death to self and a walking in his truth and being empowered by his spirit. But what a marvelous display of transformation this is. And I'll tell you this. If you will not take Jesus' approach to this, then unjust suffering is going to eat you alive. The only way that we're going to come out of these situations with a sense of peace and joy and to make it out whole is if we go Jesus' way and trust in his grace. Otherwise, friends, this world is going to tear you up and shred you, and you're going to be a really bitter person. So you're saying, well, how, how do you practically do this? Let me just put this out there. How do, you, how do you follow Jesus when you face unjust suffering? Well, first thing you do is you focus on him. Focus on Jesus. Look at his pattern. Look at grace in the face of suffering and his trials and his scourging, or even at the cross. Think about these things deeply. For instance, Peter did. Peter knew a lot about suffering. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what he did. You see, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He'll lead us. He'll provide us. He cleanses us. And we're focused on him. So you you focus on Jesus if you're going to live Transform, transformed lives in an unjust world. Second, you've got to fuel your faith. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 2? He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world that says, it's all about revenge. You never go the extra mile. It's all about your own personal rights. Someone disses you, boy, you show them what you're made of. Jesus says, no, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You fill your faith. How do you do it? Being in his word, worshiping from the heart, saying, God, help me, save me, show me the better way, and give me the strength to represent you well in these situations. And when you face unjust suffering, and you're going to, someone will tear you up one side and down the other. You'll find out just what evil looks like. And it is painful, and it'll keep you up at night, But if you're a kingdom citizen and you're following the king, you know what you do? You leave matters in the king's hand. He is fully capable of handling them. Like it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, vengeance is mine. That's what God says. I will repay. You're just going to say, man, I was poorly treated. This was terrible. But I have left it with the Lord. He will handle this better than me in every respect and I leave it with him. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. You can see that these, just, these words of Jesus shaped his entire life. And he wrote, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Where did he get that? Jesus but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. So when you face unjust suffering, you focus on him, you'll fuel your faith, and you forgive from the heart. He gives you the provision of his love. He'll release you. He'll give you the ability to release others. He'll give you grace. There's a guy by the name of Tim Stafford, and he gave this quote. I would rather be cheated a hundred times than to develop a heart of stone. You see, only Jesus, only he can give us the grace to face unjust suffering. On June 17th, 1966, there was a tragic situation. Two African-American men strode into the Lafayette Grill in Patterson, New Jersey, and they shot three people to death. There was a guy by the name of Robin Hurricane Carter. He was a celebrated black boxer in America and just an acquaintance that were actually apprehended falsely, and they were falsely charged and even wrongly convicted of the murder of these three men. In fact, these, the, these two, including this boxer, Hurricane Carter, he was adamant, I 
absolutely didn't do this, but yet in a highly publicized and racially charged trial, they were both found guilty and sentenced to prison. And yet throughout his wrong, wrongful incarnation, uh, incarceration, Hurricane Carter said, I didn't do this. He even became his own jailhouse lawyer. And after 19 years, Carter was eventually released when this great tragedy and wrong came to light. And as a free man, Carter reflected on how he has responded to this injustice in his life. So I want you to listen to this boxer and what he had to say. He says, quote, The question invariably arises. It has before and it will again. Reuben, are you bitter? And in answer to that, I will say, after all that's been said and done, the fact that the most productive years of my life between the ages of 29 and 50 have been stolen, the fact that I was deprived of seeing my children grow up, wouldn't you think I would have a right to be bitter? Wouldn't anyone under these circumstances have a right to be bitter? In fact, it would be very easy to be bitter, but that has never been my nature or my lot to do things the easy way. And then listen to what he says. If I have learned nothing else in my life, I've learned that bitterness only consumes the vessel that contains it. And for me, to permit bitterness to control or infect my life in any way whatsoever would be to allow those who imprison me to take even more than the 22 years they've already taken. Now that would make me an accomplice to their crime. And so I'd like to ask you, what will it be for you? Bitterness or the far better way of Jesus and his grace in the face of unjust suffering. You see, the kingdom of God is displayed in transformation, not retaliation.